Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Nolan Higdon, who is a lecturer at Merrill College and the Education Department at University of California, Santa Cruz. Higdon's areas of concentration include digital culture, news media, history, and critical media literacy. Higdon is a founding member of the Critical Media Literary Conference of the Americas. He sits on the boards of the Action Coalition for Media Education and Northwest Alliance for Alternative Media and Education. His publications include The Anatomy of Fake News, A Critical News Literary Education, and The Podcaster's Dilemma, Decolonizing Podcasters in the Era of Surveillance Capitalism. And his latest book, co-authored with Mickey Hoff, Let's Agree to Disagree, A Critical Thinking Guide to Communication, Conflict Management, and Critical Media Literacy, that was just published by Rutledge in February of this year. He is a longtime contributor to Project Censored's annual book, Censored. In addition, he has been a contributor to Truthout and Counterpunch, and a source of expertise for numerous news outlets, including the New York Times, CNBC, and San Francisco Chronicle. I welcome Nolan Higdon to Savage Minds. I am so thrilled to have you on the show, and I'm really excited by your latest book that you co-authored with Mickey Huff, Let's Agree to Disagree, A Critical Thinking Guide to Communication, Conflict Management, and Critical Media Literacy. Could you tell me why you two decided to write this book? I think it's absolutely on time for what is going on in this world between identity politics, safety pin culture, everyone's feelings, guiding science. Yeah, you saw that during lockdown. Everyone suddenly became an epidemiologist overnight and would block people that disagreed with them about the Damask study or whatnot. So could you talk a bit about what drove you guys to write the book? Yeah, it was really uh, some of the things you mentioned um, hit home as the reasons for for writing the book. But but honestly, it, it germinated in kind of the weirdest spot. We were um, I was finishing up my my book tour on the anatomy of fake news, and Mickey and I had done book tour on um, a book together, United States of Distraction, in 2019. And um, as we were doing the these book tours, uh, we we would go through you know the Q and A at the end, which is always our favorite part, and you know, people would say, okay, we get it. The media's got problems and there's fake news and we need to know how to spot it. And it's a bipartisan problem. But how do I, how do I talk to people who believe fake news or how do I talk to people I disagree with? And we got the question so often that Mickey and I were, you know, calling each other after these events and saying like, you know, there seems to be a real hunger just for basic skills on how to, on how to communicate. And at the same time, we were, we were noticing the things that you talked about. Um, Social media gives people this, what I call like delusion of power, um, where they think all of a sudden they're an expert on all topics all the time, and they're an authority on all topics all the time. And um, if you you disagree, uh, they have the power to block you. And there was a sustained movement to ask big tech uh, to block people. And even where we work in academia, we saw conversations that we were frightened by, where people would say things like, oh, you know, we can't reach so-and-sos or we can't get through to these type of people. And I thought, you're a teacher. If you, if you can't get through to students, like why would you get into this, this profession? So for, for all those reasons, we thought it was sort of the time was right to have a basic, basic skills book, but we were kind of looking for a frame. Like how do you convince people that talking to each other is, is the right thing? And at the same time, we saw all these headlines about how people's number one fear was other Americans and they worried that we were on the brink of civil war. And we thought, look, this is about saving democracy. Um, we, we have to learn how to 
communicate with one another, to understand one another, to move the, the society forward. We can't simply block, customize, and lampoon our way uh, to some idea of utopia or idea of social justice. You just uttered several vowels that I find very triggering. So I'm going to have to go into my corner. You know, this is insane, the kind of stuff that I have witnessed. I've been partaking in a hearing of Alison Bailey versus Stonewall in the UK. And about 10 days, 14 days ago, someone came in with their support person and support pet. This was all over the news, of course. People might find this kind of journalism tacky or cruel, but one must wonder, why are we having to have support everything, trigger statements, words? I have a, a friend, former colleague in Montreal, where I used to teach at the university, who's telling me that she finds being in the classroom at her university next to impossible because she's getting students saying you're just a white bitch you know like there, there's no more teaching everything has become ad hominem which is what i really focused on your book on the chapter where you deal with knowledge and critical thinking now you and i both know that critical thinking is this kind of five cent term that is used in academia in the 90s where everyone was supposed to be trained in critical thinking but what you and Mickey offer is actually critical thinking. It's not the kind of hokum of Judith Butler, can you get through that five page sentence that she wrote and the name dropping to Heidegger, Hegel, who knows. Um, and you actually do go through some things that I've also in my teaching over the years emphasized with students, such as let's get down to what a logical fallacy is. Because you see this, I mean, what could teach logical fallacies just through Twitter feed? Because you see it all the time. Um, well, what do you mean trans women are women, you racist? It's like, wait a sec, how do we get from talking about gender identity to racism? But that happens all the time. And, and then you go through a lot of issues re regarding inference, deductive inference, abductive inference, which I think these are really useful tools for the social media user, to the student in the classroom, to friends at a bar. Because as you know, there's been a lot of division even over COVID mitigation measures. People will block and stop talking over the gender identity issue. I can't tell you how many friends I've lost for you know three decade long friendships lost because I won't cave to the idea that we, you, me, we're all like Nemo you know because nemo can change sex therefore like these are logical fallacies up and down so how is it that you could possibly find your book useful within the university within a climate where people will say well your book is phobic because you you want to reduce everything to thinking but feelings matter because this is part of the problem of our era is that feelings tend to trump science like you can say that we're living in heliocentrism but i could say that i feel that my zodiac readings are much more important than this weird scientific concept of heliocentrism right yeah i i think um you know from from personal experience and again a lot of what you're saying um resonates with me but but from personal experience i think one of the things we write about in the book and I um, implore upon my students is you really have to establish your yourself as a, as a credible person. That doesn't mean, you know, we don't make mistakes or things like that, but 
um, by being able to, to break out of your, you know, ideological frame and say, like, I at least understand the other side. And in our classroom, I'm purposely going to push you to understand the other side or other sides. Oftentimes there's multiple views on something. Um, so because I because I, I believe it's important that to it's not only about being able to deconstruct someone else's ideological argument, but being able to defend your own. And so you need to get pushed back on that. And so engaging the classroom and that that constructive dialogue can be helpful, even though students know that um, ideologically I'm, you know, a total leftist and I'm aligned with most of them in terms of conclusion, but I'm still going to go out of my way to challenge them um, to say, like, well, why is this racist? Why is this sexist? Uh, what, what, how are you defining that term? What evidence are you using? Um, you know, et cetera. And, and to your point about feelings, um, I say, yeah, feelings are important in the classroom. Um, learning environment is, is more, it's more conducive. The classroom is more conducive to a learning environment when students feel comfortable and supported. However, you, you're going to get uncomfortable. Your, your feelings are going to get um, challenged in the classroom when we're dealing with controversial content. And that's okay. We should be able to vocalize and, and discuss that because um, our larger goal here is to build some skills we can use outside of the classroom uh, to be a better part of our society. Students generally respond um, positively uh, to that kind of stuff. I think it's when uh, some teachers make the mistake of seeing themselves as like the leader of some rally and they wanna get students to stand up and cheer them versus actually teach them is when we start to run into some problems. Well, it's interesting to see that you are located in the thick of woke culture, which is, you know, really, you know, when I saw where you were, I thought, oh, how does he pull this off from Santa Cruz? Because you are meters perhaps away from people like Judith Butler, and there's some great scholars there. But the problems that some of her publications brought forth and brought to the classroom, and I can speak for myself as a scholar, I was asked to teach queer theory at NYU. I was brought in to teach queer theory. I did it, but I didn't do it in this way of, well, this is the new orthodoxy. I thought it was interesting to look at the way that gender emerged on the cultural landscape and what that meant. But mind you, I'm talking about queer theory in the early 90s, not what it's become today. Queer mm -hmm. theory sort of jumped the shark in the late 90s. And I think it's very much tied into a lot of funding issues from NGOs that made their bread and butter over the AIDS crisis that no longer could sustain that after Crixivan came to be and AIDS became as easy to live with as diabetes. And so I do think that there's a whole market pressure behind a lot of the gender identity ideology. But one thing I noticed is that I was up for a job at Santa Cruz years ago. It was in the French department for gender studies. And the first five minutes of the interview it was a phone interview was everyone talking about how I was a woman. And I'm thinking, well, yes, Julian isn't generally a woman's name, but I just thought, is this for the gender studies position? Like, I, th I thought it was a little ironic, but what has transpired from the likes of, and I don't want to single out Judith Butler because there have been departments built on this from Michael Moon, Sandy Stone, uh, Eve Kosofsky-Sedgwick, who did brilliant work, by the way. I think her writing on men in Victorian literature was brilliant. And she deals with homosociality, a lot of great, ideas came out of the 90s. But what queer theory grew into, and I'm focusing on queer theory because it's one of those big problems where if you don't say that men in dresses are women, if you don't say that, if you say, but they're men in dresses, you can literally lose your Twitter account. And I know dozens of women who have. You can lose your job. 
you can be threatened with libel. There have been teachers in the UK who've had visits from the police, women like Kelly J. Keene Minchel, she was visited by the police in North Yorkshire for making statements as simple as men are not women. So how did we get from this highbrow Santa Cruz focus of gender is whatever you want it to be, like I'm thinking of 30 Rock Dr. Spaceman or Spachemin, depending on how you say that, right? He would always say science is whatever you want it to be. Well, no, sex isn't whatever you want it to be. There are some truisms about the human dimorphic nature of sex that is now apparently passé in some circles. How did we get here where you are physically, you're in the thick of it and you're writing about, talking about the very kind of censorship that grew out of places like Santa Cruz, Austin, a lot of the Northeastern liberal arts colleges? Yeah, I think, uh, well, I think one of the things I can, I can say for sure is um, like tenure, tenure track positions, like these secure positions have become less and less in the United States. And so a lot of the people who, um, you know, dominate elite uh, intellectual culture in the United States, they're, they're an insulated minority. Um, they don't really get challenged um, quite often. And um, a lot of the, the remaining faculty are so-called contingent or lecture adjunct faculty. And, you know, they really are under a lot of pressure, um, a lot of insecurity and taking risks, uh, challenging the status quo can, can be, you know, the end of their career because they can simply be let go without, without explanation for, for taking any one of the positions you just sort of um, described. And so I think in some way, the way the, the academy has changed and, and closely related to that, the death of um, secure faculty positions has ki it's killed faculty governance and given rise to an administrative bloat and the the administrators or professional managerial class if you will who run our institutions they're very good at co-opting um, critical language that critical scholars would agree with but turning it into policy that actually works against those very goals and so you get this this sort of like woke washing sensibility right so you know, we, we reduce um, gender rights simply down to representation and representation is end in itself. And um, we want to win the, the great gender battle, well, we'll control the language. And so here's what's acceptable to say in the classroom, here's what's not. But there's no real like intellectual rigor or interrogation or investigation. This is all being um, sort of done on the, on the surface level um, for, for management. I think at least in terms of, um, academia, I'd say that's that's the case. And I think uh, it's it's really impacted the student body as well. You know, you think back to like the zero tolerance nonsense that started in like the 1990s here in the United States. Um, you now have, um, you know, a couple generations of students who are now adults who see zero tolerance anywhere. So if you say the one wrong thing online, you need to be canceled and removed. Um, if you say the one wrong thing in the job market, you need to be fired. Um, there, there's no sort of nuance or context or, or sensibility or ideas of forgiveness that, that used to exist in, in the culture. Those have largely been eradicated under this kind of vacuous discourse of I'm going to I'm going to beat you. And that's what we hope the book will reverse, where we get into actually trying to find truths and understanding and, and manage conflict versus just trying to win and destroy each other. One part of your book that really has intrigued me, I've done a lot of work 
on the issue of DARPA, and you do go into it in your book, and you discuss the link between and the power between government and big tech, basically. And this is something that all these people who have been working as epidemiologists the last two years have focused too much on that and have lost the thread of much more complex issues including why their fake degrees in epidemiology through Twitter reading is informed entirely by a set agenda. And I found it very interesting where you talk about these companies control, not only over communication, but even over government. And I'm gonna parenthetically insert here, Biden's choices for his cabinet early on were all like WTAF to me, because we, you know, a lot of his cabinet we're coming out of Silicon Valley. Then you start to look at, let's say, the US involvement in Dragonfly with China and just a lot of very nefarious software engineering to man drones, or you know, I guess that's not PC, to human drones. We really are looking at who's wagging the dog because the more I read in terms of big tech's control and censorship, the more I am convinced that we're living in this very strange puppet state where people like Biden and the cabinet he chose, quote unquote chose, that these are theaters and that the back door, you know, think of when Dorothy pulled back the curtain and found the wizard madly pulling those levers and Toto, well, I guess it was Toto that pulled back the curtain. These people are figureheads and they really have no power and the power is being dealt completely by the heads of big transnational corporations. Not to sound like a conspiracy theorist. Yeah, you know, and I know I, I, I share that when you when you open up with what you just described, um, you, you think of all the qualifiers you have to use for people yeah. who think you're, yeah. you're sort of um, talking out of your ass. But no, you're, you're absolutely correct, right? Um, this is, this is, you know, the, I guess the, the natural pr progression of, um, neoliberal capitalism though, is to, to really make, um, people power as weak as possible and make expert and corporate, um, power centralized. And, um, big tech is a, is an awesome location for that. Um, big tech will work with whoever's in power. The idea that it's, uh, serves the democratic party is true. As long as Democrats in power, I mean, people forget the Trump administration would have regular meetings with Zuckerberg and, um, they, the campaign paid uh, hundreds of millions of dollars to Facebook to learn how to use its tools. Um, they'll work with any country, they'll work with any political party. And, um, the, the Democrats, you know, yeah, like you said, uh, just like the Biden administration is chock full of these big tech folks. So was the, the Obama administration it was basically That's a revolving right. door. Yep. And these tools come from um, DARPA. They come from the defense industry. I'm talking, when we take tools, I'm talking about the internet. I'm talking about touchscreen. I'm talking about GPS. Um, these companies have uh, uh, services with the federal government, like Amazon has contracts with the CIA. Um, the NSA has contracts with, with these companies and things like that. So it, it's not really easy to say where, where government um, ends and, and big tech begins. And I think that's a crucial point we try and make throughout the book and a crucial point I try and make with folks um, when we're, we're debating issues of censorship online, because they, they immediately go to the content, right? They're saying like, well, do you want this, this hate speech online? Do you want this racist content online? And of course, in like my ideal world, I, I don't want these things to exist. I don't want um, white supremacist content to exist, but I'm less concerned with the content. I'm more concerned with who are you going to empower to determine what content I should and shouldn't see? And if it's gonna be some unaccountable corporation, um, particularly one that has ties to the government, so it's censorship by proxy, you're never gonna get me on board with that.
at regardless of what the content at hand is. Yes. And this is one of the bigger problems as well is that we're being fed this narrative. And we see this every election where people who are left of the Democrats are asked to hold their noses. We're asked to say, well, just vote for Biden, just vote for Obama. I was horrified by Obama's administration all the way through from day one. In the first week or two of his presidency, he signed this major bill ostensibly giving funding to national parks, which it did in part, but it really authorized the ability to bring weapons into bars. There's some really weird writing of some of these legislative pieces that are put before politicians' noses. The shooting that just happened. I mean, now there's so many shootings in the States. I guess I have to specify which one. It was an elementary school? Yes, yeah. I had to read twice. I'm thinking, elementary school? You know, in Europe, people are constantly mocking in a very critical way, not a sarcastic way, the fact that our country has so many guns shootings, so much violence, but these mass shootings have been on and on. They've been so intensified, it seems, the last five years. And I don't know if there are sociologists working on what has intensified it, because we would get shootings, but every year there'd be a mass shooting, like a postal, whatever. Now it seems to be a weekly event. And is it, you know, I don't want to sound like a Republican here because at a certain point you do have to wonder, it can't just be the guns because the guns have been there. There are some other markers adding on to this. And I don't think we can exclude lockdown, all the economic stress. Don't even get me started on that because what happened unilaterally across the West, including from Italy, the first day Italy became this like petri dish of let's see what happens when we lock people up and for the next two years often on lockdown and we'll constantly titillate them with the most important news that all people want to know which is when will we be able to watch our football i swear i wanted to throw my computer across the room when i heard this when could people go to their second homes the government here gave not one shit about people renting who had no home and they were talking about second homes from the third week of lockdown. It was a constant. People were whining about it because they were worried about being able to spend Easter at their vacation home. Italy, FYI, has a very high home ownership rate, one of the highest in Europe, if not one of the highest in the world. And of the homeowners, many have multiple homes. And it's largely because Italy has the slowest population growth in Europe. So we have shootings that in this violence that seems to have been exacerbated the last five years in the States. And what people are arguing about on Twitter isn't how tragic the deaths are. It's he was a white supremacist. We're worried about these kinds of, yes, it's important to talk about white supremacy if someone did something in the name of that, surely. But I'm worried that we're lacking uh, the bigger picture understanding the interlocking narratives that go way, way beyond white supremacy and are very likely that which links the left and the right, which is class issues. And we saw this during lockdown, Nolan. I, I had to do double takes. For the last two years, I've been tuning into Fox and I'm th pinching myself thinking, this is Tucker Carlson, whom I loathed in 2004, five, six, I couldn't stand him and his ties. I hated his ideology pushing that damn war or those damn wars in Afghanistan, Iraq and the drone war that never somehow got called a war 
in the New York Times or the San Francisco Chronicle, but whatever. And the way Obama subtly renamed the global war on terror and it became something, something, something contingency act. Remember? So all of this news is just, it's like painting the facade of a window, you know, making, redoing a window dressing for a shop. And, and big tech has a huge role in this because they are the people that are in control of all the information that is shared in the US. The last report I read, which was about eight, 10 months ago, but well over 50% of Americans are getting their news from social media. I think it was 54%, but don't quote me on that. So what we have is Vice President Biden at the time chose as his national security advisor from 2009 to 2013, Tony Blinken. Mm -hmm. He was also Obama's national security advisor from 2013 to 15. And then he was the United States Deputy Secretary of State from 2015 to 2017. And Blinken was one of the major figures opposed to the withdrawal of US troops from Syria, stating that it would lead to a dangerous power vacuum and you know and then you have flournoy that was on the list to go in and the whole crossover between west exec advisors and the database that was used between the government and the military venture capitalism it's like on and on and google blinken and google nolan this it depresses me when i see people who think that they're leftists and they're not they're neoliberals they're democrats they're not leftists because they're not talking about anything left but they believe themselves to be leftists because somehow that word's become au courant the last few years. Or to quote one British journalist, I'm a Marxist, damn it, but nothing she writes is actually about anything related to materiality. She writes constantly about pronouns. So how is it that we're living in this very strange nightmare scape of pronouns taking over material reality of so-called leftists. Meanwhile, the likes of Glenn Greenwald and many feminists are having to go onto Fox News to get their voices heard about what is important about the messages surrounding poverty, lockdown, the lockdown madness, the science that was faked, the fact that we have not been able to get Pfizer or Moderna to reveal the true studies behind their vaccines. You see what I'm saying here, yeah? Yeah, there's, um, well, I think, you know, at a more, just to, to kind of um, start where you ended there, in terms of like issues of uh, class and material conditions, um, once the Democratic Party went full, full on neoliberal, um, starting with Carter and then 100% with Clinton, um, they, they really gave up class issues. I mean, the, and working class people really had nowhere to go. Um, what that resulted in, in the long run is um, conservatives have been more than happy to co-op the language of class. They're not going to do anything for you um, in terms of your material conditions. But in the United States, Tucker Carlson, Donald Trump, they'll, they'll at least speak to class issues and, and lampoon NAFTA, where the neoliberals and the Democrat Democratic Party stay, stay largely silent um, on this issue. Uh, preferring to talk about um, race and, and gender, um, but uh, to your, I think you, you get to a much bigger point um, that, that's more important. And what you were discussing there is that so much of our politics has been trivialized into events we see happening in a vacuum. So we talk about this one word: should it be used or not used? This one shooter, this isolated shooter, or et cetera, right? 
But these larger systemic problems take a certain level of sophistication. Um, they take uh, some stability in government. And I mean that not only in terms of like a singular party, but really a, a guiding like ideology or set of principles and policies that government tries to achieve. And we simply don't have that in the United States anymore. Um, in the United States, what we have is basically trivial arguments over um, abortion and immigration, which I do think are important issues, but not the way we discuss them. Um, we also take, you know, critical identity issues of class, cult, race, gender, sexuality. And again, we break them down to trivial, vacuous matters and, and social media helps with that. Uh, we learn to hate each other. We learn to want to own or defeat the other side. But we never really talk about like, what do we want to do with that victory? What's the, what's the policy game? Where do we want to see the country go? Um, you were talking about how you were in, being um, sort of insulted by news stories about sports. Similarly, here in the United States, you know, they keep referring to it um, as this great international supply chain crisis. But the fact that here we are in the richest country on earth, we, we didn't have things like bread, baby formula, or eggs that we could depend upon being on a shelf or milk, other forms of dairy. If we if we read about that happening in any other country, we would be musing about how this is like the end of that nation. It must be in like third world status that they can't get basic things like bread, baby formula, et cetera. So I, I think Americans um, are, are so distracted by the wrong things, largely because of a failed free press system that's really a corporate press system and social media and a savvy political propaganda system perpetrated by the two parties that they don't really have time to, or, or the perspective to think about what are the larger policies they need and how to achieve them. As you said, there's no class consciousness in the state, something that I beat on and on about because people in the states, when you say that, they say, well, what do you mean by that? And I'm very happy to explain what I mean by that because class consciousness is part of a cultural heritage that has been more or less eviscerated in the States. And I don't think it's always been absent, but we have this thing called the American dream that I think is largely responsible for the evisceration of discussions of class. So that the notion is this, my grandparents came from, name the country, and my grandfather worked hard at, name the job, and my father was the first person in his family to go to university. So let's deconstruct that. Going to university in the States, as you well know, involves for many people who are not coming from affluent families, undertaking this thing called the student loan. For our British listeners and listeners from many countries who have loans, it's not the same thing. Loans in Canada, loans in Britain are much smaller than the loans that Americans are taking out, such that you can finish with just a bachelor's degree and the choice would have been buy a nice house or have a degree, right? And the, I saw this when I was teaching at NYU in the 90s, I had students that needed letters of recommendation for internships. And I would sit down with them and I would say, this is great. I even had one student who did an internship for David Byrne. I was like, this sounds like fun. I wanna do that internship, but don't do it for more than a couple months after, you know, you should make sure you're getting paid have your lunches, your transport, don't get taken advantage of. And I had this discussion with them because I saw back then in the early to mid nineties, this trend happening. And that trend, it's not that it started in New York, but these kinds of trends tend to start 
in large cities and they spread out. A few years later, everyone was going for internships in graduate school because there were no jobs. And this becomes this very dangerous funnel that students fall into because they're 18, signing on dotted line stuff that no one can, when you're 18, you'll, you'll do anything, right? Because you wanna live, you wanna experiment. You don't think about being in debt in your 60s and you have no clue about what ageism is. You have no clue about how, well, none of us did, how a pandemic starts right now. You know, my wife was ringing on the doorbell and I thought that they forgot their lunches and I picked up the chitafona, what do you call the telephone there? And she said, oh, the school is closed. There's a pandemic. <laughs> That's how much I don't take in media on the weekends. So the reality is that what we call the greatest nation on earth, and yes, our country is very rich, but man, when you talk to Europeans who come over and they see East LA, they see East St. Louis, they see some of the ghettos that we have created in our country because of the division of wealth, they are horrified because you compare this to Unité Habitation in Marseille, and I'm using a very uh, beautiful place on purpose, but when Le Corbusier designed this beautiful structure, one of the most beautiful apartment complexes in the world, he did this as a public housing project. When you look at the Barbican, yes, brutalism, you might hate it, you might like it. It's, I personally think it's beautiful, but that was a public housing project. And when you look at the way, just walking through London, that you can literally see the Queen's horses through the gate somewhere, and then two feet over, there's a new housing project. So the mixture of wealth and poverty occurs in much of Europe, where in the States, we have created ghettos. And I'm not talking just about the uh, gated communities that are quite common, especially amongst retirees and a certain type of affluent uh, populace in, in Florida. I saw this a lot in Southern Florida when I would visit my father. But we're living you know, in this twisted reality of what words mean, right? So we have education, but at what price, Nolan? <laughs> No, it's a great, uh, it's a great point. We've, um, this, you know, this was also an experiment. Educational institutions have a lot of um, blame as well um, when it comes to the student loan debt. I mean, in the United States, they have such huge marketing budgets and these slick marketing campaigns. And at some level, they're, they're selling students an invisible products. Like, um, you know, we pat ourselves in the back for outcomes for how many students we graduated, which, you know, I would argue often incentivizes grade inflation, but that aside, um, we, we, we don't take any responsibility for whether or not those folks get out and have economic stability after they leave our institutions. And I, I think that's a, a grave failure of higher ed in the United States in a way it contributes to this um, student loan problem. Um, I, I, also, um, I also think, you know, going back to what you said about this kind of lack of class consciousness, we, we, we do see these bursts of class consciousness um, in the United States. We saw it in the Occupy movement. We saw it in the um, you know, Black Lives Matter movement in, in 2013. Um, during the pandemic, we saw it with the folks at the State House in, in Michigan who were demanding the reopening of the economy and, and the trucker convoy. Um, unfortunately, our, our media system, oh, we saw the Bernie Sanders campaign in 2016 as well. Um, Unfortunately, our media system is really good about finding labels to instantly marginalize those attempts at class consciousness. So 
Um, you know, the Occupy movement was treated as like naive youths or radical socialists, which has a horribly negative connotation in the United States, or Bernie Sanders supporters were all white and um, sexist Bernie bros, even though they were young and, and majority people of color, that aside. Um, but but these um, these labels stick, and, and, and again and again, people lose their, their sense of class consciousness. So when I, when I saw, like, you know, the, the Michigan folks trying to open up the economy, you know, I understood. I'm a educated, uh, privileged person. I get to sit at home and earn my uh, income through a screen. Th these folks were saying, like, hey, you shut down the economy. You took away my livelihood, and, and you're not giving me any anything to live off of in the meantime. Like, we want the economy open. I saw it as, like, an expression of democracy and class politics. Um, but, but the way it was framed in media, you know, it was white supremacists and gun nuts um, storming the Capitol. And it's like, and people at home who, who are from the working class don't, if they believe that media narrative, they lose all sense of class consciousness or solidarity with those folks. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. I completely agree. I wrote a big piece about the, I don't call it a riot. I just call it a protest at the Capitol from last January. I was disturbed, I still am, about the media silence as to the voices of the people there. Yes, let's leave the dude with the weird horned hat to the side. These people who entered into the Capitol, watched the footage, and I'm very sorry about the person who was killed or who died, I should say, but the reality is that, and there was a woman killed as well, but there was another person, an officer who died. The reality mm -hmm. is that we focused on, the media focused on the relatively insignificant numbers inside and ignored the voices outside, which I think was wrong. There should have been both. We should have been given the coverage about what happened inside, fair enough. But where were the cameras outside talking to people? You looked at CNN and it was just white supremacists everywhere. And these were not white supremacists. I went and interviewed people. I spoke with people. In fact, the people I spoke with weren't even white. And they were people who, like in the past, log cabin Republicans, et cetera, et cetera, people have a hard time squaring the fact that you can be gay and a Republican or that you can be a Chinese American Republican or that you could be a gay African American Republican, right? No one likes things that don't fit into nifty boxes. And so we've come up with all these words, right? Self-hating this and, well, life isn't a tick box. And I think, you know, where your book, your and Mickey's book gets at this very important tissue of being able to, as my mother used to say, disagree agreeably. Like, why is it that we have to just, you know, Nolan, that's it. I'm blocking you. Everything is about blocking. And as you mentioned way early on, that social media has fed this. The mechanisms of social media, I find perniciously an unconscious part of the way people interact when they're off social media, you see? Because obviously I'm not gonna say, oh, mute. I guess I literally could, but the reality is that I like challenge. I like when people disagree with me as much as when they agree, because I can learn. I might not even agree with them in the end, but I can learn about their points of view. Sometimes I find the discussions go way off guard 
Uh, I had a discussion recently with someone about Palestine who said, oh, but they're backwards cultures, they're misogynists. And I was like, ugh. I, you know, and then I started to say, well, look, have you been there? Have you talked to the people there? And I think we become very much embedded in what might be called you know, third person reporting. So I heard that, I read on Twitter that human sex is no longer dimorphic because we're like Nemo. And, and you've got Ricky Gervais. I saw a clip of his new show, which I'm so excited to see, where he says, well, what happens if you're raped by one of these men in prison? And Gervais says, what if she rapes you, you turf? He's been following everything. Yeah, um, no, there, uh we one of the reason why we you know one of the things we talk about in in the book is precisely what you're you're getting at there is um if you want to really change minds you want to change society um you have to be able to have dialogue with people and that necessitates understanding where people are at not uh, where you think they're at because so much of what we understand about those we disagree with or different cultures or countries comes from a narrow corporate media frame. And so we understand characters of each other. So many Republicans, they, they understand a character of Democrats and Democrats understand a character of Republicans, et cetera, down on the line. And that's no real way to, to have a society. You have to meet people where they're at and put in the hard work. And one of the pieces of pushback, you know, we, we get, and we address this in the book, um, people say, well, you know, it's not my job. I disagree. It is all of our jobs. In a democracy, it's a 24-hour-a-day job. If, if you don't want to put in the time to make this a better place, better country, wherever this may be, um, you're in luck. There's a lot of authoritarian regimes who are looking for docile bodies who aren't interested in doing anything. But a, but a democracy necessitates that you spend your time, um, you know, managing conflict, engaging with other people, expanding your mind, um, going to um, resources and, and the press to, to try and better inform yourself. Um, we also get pushback from people who say, hey, you're two, you know, privileged college instructor, white males. Um, what do you guys know about uh, what it really means to go out there? And we purposely went out and found examples in the book and studies in the book of people who are not like us. We found trans activists who go out and they spend time having 10 minute conversations with what they call transphobes, changing their minds, which then changes their votes. Uh, we highlight Daryl Davis, African-American activist who has talked over 200 Klansmen out of leaving the Ku Klux Klan. He largely uses um, music as a, as a starting point. And um, to what you said there about stand-up comedy, we, we talk briefly in the book about comedy. Um, Mickey and I had a longer thing there we want to talk about, but we, we removed it ultimately from the final draft. But um, needless to say, I am a big, big fan of the art of stand-up comedy. I think it's, when it's done well, it gets you to laugh before you can really even think about why you're laughing or protest your own laughter. Um, it reveals something about kind of where you're at mentally and what you're hearing and perhaps like the absurdity of what's being said, which, which can open your mind to thinking about things that we sort of take for granted. Um, so I think it's a really important art form. And one of the things I'm, I'm really frightened by with this uh, knee-jerk reaction to remove anything that makes me uncomfortable is what we're doing to artists in general, but, but stand-up comedians in, in particular. Um, sometimes stand-up comedians play a character of the worst parts of our society. And by making us laugh at it, they make us recognize it. And then that's a really important function, I think, in a democracy. We need self-reflection. And, and stand-up comedy can be a very big and important part of that. 
when I read your book and I was thinking a lot about the protests outside of Netflix headquarters last year in LA, and then you know, the demonstrations against Dave Chappelle, the fact that Twitter has been kicking off feminists for saying that men are not women or women who just are doing activism and saying you can't put men in women's prisons and well, they're women and that whole debate and it's going on in many countries now. Um, and you, you discuss also the, uh, the work of political leftists like Chris Hedges, who's had his YouTube channel removed. This is really worrying to me, not that Chris Hedges shouldn't have his YouTube channel on another platform or not, but the idea that what we call the public square has been entirely privatized. I remember when Megan Murphy, Canadian feminist who was kicked off of Twitter several years ago, she took Twitter to court and lost. Now, the problem is this, and this is a real problem of our country and the way that we love to love capitalism. It's a private business, Twitter. If you want to make your own public sphere online, go ahead and do it. But there's a problem there, right, Nolan? There's a monopoly. And this is what I was hoping that her case would win because of anti-monopoly laws, but it didn't. What would it take for us to liberate Twitter from the hands of private owners then? Because it seems to me a lot of what's happened is because of capitalism and, and private ownership. And the only way to rid this kind of toxic censorship is to put it in the hands of the people. And you mentioned a little bit ago about, well, yes, who wants to have white supremacists out there? But the reality is we basically have to choose between sanitizing the world or everything we don't want. And I mean, Crocs and Uggs are going in my universe, or I can learn to tolerate the Uggs and the Crocs. I can learn to tolerate the fact that white supremacists exist. And I'm going to parenthetically state a lot of what the media, and I'm talking about MSNBC and CNN, et cetera, all those guys, what they call white supremacists are often not at all. We can return to that later, Nolan, but I'm very troubled that I too have fallen down certain rabbit holes thinking, oh, well, that's bad. Then I do some research and I find out, wait, just like the January riots, what is called the riots in the capital, the people by and large were not at all white supremacists and many were not white. The same thing with the truckers over the Detroit border in Windsor. We saw these Canadian truckers. One reporter was trying to ask this guy if he was a white supremacist and I'll never forget the answer. The guy says, I'm black, <laughs> you know, like that was it. <laughs> when it comes to the, the, the white supremacy, though, I, I'd go make sort of, a, I'd agree with you, but I'd make one kind of nuance. It's, it's not that we necessarily need to choose between, you know, eradicating white supremacy online or having to live with it. I think um, regardless of what happens online, we need to do the work um, to mitigate the influence and expansion of, of this ideology. And, and um, I think there's a lot of work that we, we can and we, we should be doing. And I would also wager, and this is perhaps a little more controversial, that when you remove white supremacy from online or you tell people they can't use certain white, white supremacist words or ideas, you don't actually eradicate the ideology. The people who internalize it just find other ways to communicate it. And if anything, you feed into their already paranoia that they somehow have the real idea of what's going on to whites, um, that, thus why they're being censored. And I think you need to rather than try and lampoon these people, you need to engage them and really interrogate um, them and, and force them to deconstruct a lot of these, these viewpoints they have. Um, and, I, and I'd also say, uh, it's not just that these tech companies are unaccountable monopolies, which they absolutely are. And if we had actual trust busting, we would break them up without question. We wouldn't even 
be debating it. That, that's problematic on its own. But even worse, um, as we talked about earlier, they're aligned with the United States government. So when they censor, it's censorship by proxy. Um, Mark Warner is a senator. He's had a white paper, I think, for about four years now or three years, uh, calling for the breaking up of big tech. And every time the Democrats ask big tech to remove a certain person or certain ideology, big tech does it because they're afraid that if they don't, the government's going to come in and break them up. That's censorship by proxy. Um, the fact that the government gives you loans and contracts and then asks you to do something. If you don't do it, the clear uh, coercion there is, if I don't do it, they're going to take away my contract. So you do it. That's censorship by proxy. Um, so we need, to, we need to get ourselves out of this sensibility where it's like private industry versus government. This is government working through private industry, which has a monopoly. And once we wrap our head around that, then I think we can talk more substantively about um, solutions. But as long as we, we separate the two, I think we sell our, ourselves short on coming up with an actual solution of how to deal with big tech's toxic effect on our democracy. Yes, I completely agree. And in the piece we ran of yours, you wrote about the Roe v. Wade decision. And you said that the decision makes it crystal clear that hyperpartisan narratives and the lesser of two evil strategy run counter to progressive policy. Anyone who argues differently, and they will in the 2022 midterms and the 2024 elections and beyond, is acting in bad faith or gravely misinformed. And this is something you get at with Mickey Huff in your book. This is the thing. I interviewed Harry Belafonte many years ago at a film festival, Locarno. And one thing that I was really impressed by was when he talked about going with Martin Luther King to the centers of KKK just meeting with these Klansmen and talking to them. And I was like, my eyes pretty much popped out of my head because I thought, you know, this wasn't in the 1980s. This was, you know, in the 1950s. And this is the work of activists. This is what activists should be doing. And you discuss this. In fact, you discuss in the other piece you did with Mickey Huff, the idea that activism has sort of changed the way that it performs in public. And it was in the piece you wrote, The United States of Distraction Continues, where you two mention MLK, you mention Emmett Goldman, and the way in which activism has sort of gone, as the British would say, tits up. What's happened with activism that it's no longer working? And you mentioned earlier Occupy Wall Street. I was at the LSX encampment in 2012 filming for a lot of that year. People were there physically, but the words that I was filming, they couldn't resonate a, a narrative in London, at least. Everything came back to watch this film on YouTube. And there was a lot of conspiracy theory threads flowing through but the people will get what the people want. And it was all rhetoric and there was no real backbone to it. And I got a little frightened by the fact that they seemed to have all the accoutrement of a protest, of a sit-in, of a camping, but there was no oomph going on. Yeah, um, you know, I'll give, I'll give credit to, to um, two, two great, um, I think, scholars who speak to this issue. Um, Christian Fuchs, uh, whom, whom I love, and um, <clears throat> Angela Nagel wrote a book called mm -hmm. Killing the Normies, which I, which I would recommend oh, for folks. I love that, that book. This question. You do? <laughs> yes, yes. So I know she's a, she's a, let's say, controversial figure, but I, I dig the book. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, essentially, um, th they write to, and I think this is true, there's other folks as well, but this kind of like techno-utopianism emerged out of social media in roughly 2006 and beyond, and through the Arab Spring and Occupy, 
um, these legitimate grievances on the ground and people taking action against those grievances, um, big tech really co-opted that to show that big tech was responsible for the spread of democracy. And the message that a lot of um, young people received uh, was that, you know, the way activism is done is online. So the fact we can communicate what gender identity we have or what pronouns we prefer, that's activism. Or um, the fact that we can, you know, own the other side online, that's activism. Or we can add a nice graphic to the bottom of our email, that's activism. Well, first of all, you know, that maybe if it is activism, it's the most shallow sense like slacktivism. But in, in, the, in the meantime, we really lost any sense of what activism is or what purpose it serves in a democracy. Um, you know, our, our education system doesn't really teach civics. Uh, it teaches MLK, but he's really reduced to a, a guy who had a dream, um, not this like brilliant organizer, which he was. Um, folks like Emma Goldman are, I mean, like never probably talked about in American classrooms. Um, but so, so you have a generation that interestingly has this ability to communicate, which any activist like MLK's generation would have loved to have had, um, but doesn't really have that, that knowledge about why, what the importance of activism, why we organize, why you have to inform, why you have to have certain strategies and certain strategies work in certain situations, why there needs to be goals, why... Uh, allies in the political class, you need to get them in office so you can force them through coercion to, to pass the policy you want. We just don't simply, we don't have that. So the, the movements we largely have, and this is where Nagel's work really comes in powerfully, is you have these flimsy movements that are all online and it can easily be steamrolled. And so you, you just tell them, look, you, you want all these issues? Great. You have to vote for the Democratic Party. We're, we're sorry you wanted Bernie you know, the Democratic Party marginalized Bernie, now you got to vote for Hillary, and these people with no organizing base just fold and do it. So they really are no threat to the party. They, the, the, the left in the United States doesn't threaten any party because they refuse to withhold their vote or take any bold action. One thing that I've thought of, because I do a lot of media analysis when I was in academia as well, and I keep coming back to this. This might not come out right, but let me just try here. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all the new ones, TikTok. Like, I've had to tell people, please don't send me anything on WhatsApp. I've deactivated my account there. I can only have a few things that I open because if you try to communicate with me in any other way than email or a text message, like locally, I guess, I'm just not going to be able to promise you that I'm opening that app. I, I don't have notifications on. Now, I preface this because I worry that we are mistaking online life for real life. And obviously, I don't think people are delusional. I think people know the difference between typing, hi, how are you? And walking into a bar and saying, hey, how are you? You know, but I worry that this kind of virtuality has been, remember back in the early 90s when we were told this was going to be the democratization of society, that one day we can do everything online, and yes to that. Yes, that I don't have to go to the post office for stamps. Yes, I can pay my water bill. Yes to so many things I can do. But the trade-off, Nolan, because I remember being in graduate school in the 90s, and I seem to have a lot more time even having to pay my electric bill in an office or write a check. Oh yes, those 30 seconds to write a check, lick that envelope and send it off to Brooklyn Union Gas. And they would say, don't write bug, but everyone writes bug. Because then there was this idea that we were saving time by this new technology. And here we are 
20 years later, 30 years later, and I see that we're more enmeshed in this technology. I don't see that we have been liberated of our time. I think it's just to paraphrase Neil Postman, we're amusing ourselves to death in this kind of very strange dreamscape slash nightmarescape of a reality that I posit this with feminists all the time. If it weren't for social media, do you think any of these men would get away with saying, but I'm a lady? I'm thinking of Little Britain, that skit, but I'm a lady. So we know that someone who has hands the size of watermelon and that is six foot two is very likely a man. Yes, there are tall women, yes. But the idea that all of these fake identities have come out and have insisted on the reality that you call me by my preferred pronouns, that has gotten away with this kind of narrative for so long because of the non-reality, the non-physicality. And I worry, just that's gender identity, but I worry that so many other isms have taken off because we're not having face-to-face -face discussions. We're no longer talking to each other. We talk across. These platforms are made to divide us and to atomize us. Yeah, and um, no, I would concur. And I, uh, one of the um, great pieces of writing I've read on that um, recently was Cal Newport. Um, he's done a great, a lot, ton of great work on this. But one of his uh, most recent books, I forget what the title is, something about email. But he he talks about how in the '90s, um, you know, they used to um, read emails in between doing tasks in the office. Now they do tasks in between reading email. Um, basically, email is your life, and you try and do work around email. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and I, yeah. I think that resonates for a lot of people. I know it, it certainly is true um, in my life. Absolutely. On the on the social media front, uh, yeah, I concur. And I, I think your, your your problem you're speaking to there about how you don't have enough time to check all the different apps. I think that's actually one of the positive directions I see happening in, in the social <laughs> media world. Um, yeah, I, I'm enjoying all this infighting between like conservatives and liberals over what is and isn't appropriate on platforms. And so my solution is let's create a new platform. Um, as you create all these new platforms, eventually we'll just it'll become such a, a pain. Um, it's easier to go back to like email or the phone, you know, FaceTime on the phone or whatever to communicate with the people you want rather than sign into you know five different apps to talk to the person you want who's on that app, but not on the other app. So I'm hoping social media will kind of um, implode through this uh, great process of diversifying the amount of platforms that are out there. Well, yes, I also think of Facebook Messenger as free phone, you know, like I can open up my Viber account. Uh, there's many who have Skype and other platforms, but I just I use them as minimally as possible in terms of communicate. I don't have a lot of time these months, but I do see what you're saying about watching the debates that happen on Twitter. Um, I've gotten into a few of them myself. I watch them, comment a little bit. I'm not really all that invested these months because in the post-lockdown era with small children, we're trying to get sort of some kind of, I don't want to say back to normal, but some kind of pattern of living that we can be outside and see people. I saw someone today that I saw a few months ago and I was like, you did you shave your beard did so and he says i don't have my mask and i'm like oh my god like this is very basic like i never knew him without his mask and so we're trying to you know take up 
some of the deficits, and there have been some really huge deficits here from lockdown, psychologically for my children, for us, it's been harsh. So I'm trying to come out of this and my enormous anger for what we were put through. And I talk to Italians all the time. I'm like, because they're like, hey, where have you been? I'm like, I've been here. I didn't want to talk to anyone because all I would do is complain about what we've been put through. And I've opened up discussions to people at a recent music festival. I'm like, yes, let's enjoy the music, but let's talk about the fact that we were put into a domestic prison for two years. Let's talk about it. And people don't want to talk about it. They want to pretend like I can see where the conformista was made. Like Bertolucci's film is sort of a testament to what the country of Italy is about in many respects, because people want to forget and move on because they believe that this will never repeat. Of course it will. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah, the, the nature for sure. But uh, I, I would, you know, I would, um, emphasize that one of the things we, we point out in the book, which which echoes, I think, what you're what you're saying here, is um, developing strategies to to minimize our time using digital technologies. And this is something I think we we often communicate about in kind of passive ways or comedic ways, but but it's a real serious issue. Um, it, it's showing some serious mental health problems, particularly for young people. Um, and we need to have a more kind of um, robust discussion about that. And so we give. Some, some strategies that we encourage people to use. One thing that's really basic, um, I encourage everybody to turn off all the permissions on their phones, um, turn off all notifications. So if you have to take a picture or video, you have to turn your permissions back on. Usually those extra steps get you to be like, uh, yeah, I don't really need to take this picture. So you take a lot less pictures, a lot less videos. And like you said, you spend a lot more time just being present um, in the room um, when, when, you're, when you're doing things. Uh, I would take, you know, all this social media apps off your phone. Just just keep them on your computer if you're going to keep them at all. Um, so you can kind of use them uh, when you're home or when you're with your laptop versus when you're out on the road or, or whatever um, to distract you from from the real world. Um, and yeah, make and make, you know, um, firm plans to do things that don't require digital technologies. Like you talk about concerts. I love live music. That's one of my, my favorite things. The number one thing I missed during the pandemic was live music. Um, and, um, you know, going to these shows though, and just everybody pulls up their friggin' camera to take pictures. And they never look at those pictures again. That's always what I say. I'm like, there's professional <laughs> photographers who'll take better pictures and you're never going to look at your pictures or video anyways. And like, you're missing this, you know, incredible art right in front of your face. Um, so I think, you know, kind of re having those kind of discussions with people to get them um, to think about that can be, can be really powerful. Um, Ann Applebaum has an interesting, uh, you know, I'm not a fan of hers, but she has an interesting thing. She talks about how um, on New Year's Eve, 2020, she was thinking back to the Y2K New Year's and she was thinking of all the friends she no longer has and all those friendships that ended, um, she could relate back to a social media problem. Um, and I would encourage people to reflect on that themselves. Like is, you know, how many real world relationships have been ruined by social media? And this could be part of a larger project. I encourage people to make a list on a piece of paper and on the left, put all the positives of social media and on the right, all the negatives and make an informed decision. Like, is this worth it? You know, or do the negatives outweigh the positives so much that you should get rid of the, your accounts, you know, and, and I having, so I, I would encourage people to kind of start thinking that way about social media use um, to, to get at some of the problems you're speaking to. 
Do you find, let's take Twitter, do you find Twitter a useful tool for discussing? Because there are people on both sides of this debate who say, how can you say anything in 240 characters or whatever it is now? Uh, even Facebook, where you can write a novel if you wish. But I, my own thought on this is we need in real life interactions to have that kind of connection that can only happen through real life. It's very easy to spot, spout off a few statistics or quickly Google something and then copy paste. And people do this all the time. But when we start to get down to what's wrong with the world, with what's wrong with our society, it comes back to the fact that there's some kind of addictive dependence here of people not being able to, as I saw in a cartoon, the guy's in the bed, the woman's at the computer, and he's like, come to bed. And she says, wait, I'll be a minute. There's someone who's wrong online. Yeah, it, it is. Um, but yeah, that, that human interaction is really important. It's how we um, break through layers to understand um, each other and, our, and ourselves. Um, and when it's on social media, uh, first of all, the, the platform tries to get us to react, not actually think and discuss. But when, when, we're, when we're in person, you know, we tend to feel more comfortable to say things like, you know, I wouldn't want the whole world on social media to know this, but sometimes I think this, or I've got this idea that it's not really fully formulated, but here's what I'm thinking. And I kind of bounce it off you, right? And you think about it and you notice some holes and you bounce it back to me. Um, that that sort of like, uh, you know, candor just doesn't exist online because if, if, I, if I did that online and it's not fully formed, it could be used against me for the next like 40 years to destroy my career. God forbid I made some like error in, a, in using the wrong word or something like that. Um, so that, that's that's why we need like that that one-on-one -on -one or face-to-face -face space is so critical. So we can kind of work through these ideas and, and learn. You and Mickey mentioned this in your book. You talk about people's desire to humiliate, to punish through these social media avenues. And you write, indeed, studies show that people get a hit of dopamine, a chemical messenger in the brain that provides people with feelings of pleasure when someone is held accountable for a transgression. This is summed up in the word schadenfreude, which combines the words malicious and damage with joy to describe the pleasure people feel when they see other people's misfortune. And, you know, you this... This part of your book made me think a lot about the fact that this is what social media tends to be about. It's not a place of pleasure. It's this weird place of pleasure and pain. It's a kind of circus where people, you can see it. And I don't want to generalize, not all people, whatever. But there is this sense, there's this wave of people wanting to humiliate and one-up the next guy. And Twitter is, uh, to me, a minefield of people one-upping. Well, you didn't read this peer-reviewed study, you know. <laughs> It does. It has. It has that. I, I always tell people, um, look, if you whatever issue is your number one issue, whatever you you care about, if it's patriarchy or white supremacy or democracy or civil rights, whatever it may be, um, you, you need to to have conversations about that in an arena that respects the topic. And social media is just not that arena. It's not a space that really respects in depth analysis and constructive dialogue. It, it's better served to destroy relationships and divide and trivialize uh, matters like that. So what's the takeaway from Let's Agree to Disagree? For readers of this book, do you think that people will be more drawn towards devising new ways of interacting with media, online media of all sorts? Or will many people maybe just 
think, well, critical thinking, you know, I thought I had it in university, but this is not at all what I was taught. I was taught this kind of mainstreaming of opinion. Everyone has to agree that there are many genders, et cetera, et cetera. What are your thoughts in terms of what maybe you'd like your readers to get from this book? I hope, they, I hope readers get a, a sense of responsibility that, that they do need to go out and have constructive dialogue with people with whom they think they disagree. And they need to approach that dialogue, not from a position of, I want to change your mind, but I want to understand you. Um, I want to ask questions. So uh, what is your conclusion or what is your argument? What evidence do you have to support that? Why do you think that evidence is sufficient? Um, maybe you'll convince me I'm wrong. Uh, maybe I'll open your eyes up to the fact that you don't have evidence or you have insufficient evidence and you need to do more research. Um, regardless of what it is, at least we're going to learn something from each other in the process. And that better positions us to be able to have a relationship where we can work constructively together. And that really, as the book points out, runs counter to the way our media system currently operates. And once people start to realize kind of what's possible in a more critical thinking um, constructive dialogue environment versus our media environment, I hope people will, will turn to media that, that supports them. So media that informs them or media that encourages um, debate versus this media that trivializes content or directly lies to them or reduces debate to red versus blue arguments. Um, so even though uh, we deal with some pretty, uh, you know, dark or negative topics within the book, it really is an optimistic book of like, this is things that democracies have done for a long time. This is things that activists are doing currently and, and it's succeeding. And we hope readers, particularly in formal education, in the classroom, but also people in the community, parents, just interested uh, citizens, pick up the book. We think it'll, it'll serve them well. And, and, you know, we hope we're a part of process of, of changing the United States from the trajectory it's currently on.